So here's the reading of God's word from Hosea chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day... I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, which means the Lord sows. And I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is God's most holy word. Who is Hosea? Let's take a look at him for just a second. The book of Hosea is one of the 12 minor prophets. Minor in the length of the prophecy. Hosea as an individual is unique among all the 12 minor prophets because he actually came from the northern kingdom. There's actually one more. Two of them came from the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, if you remember, consisted of ten tribes that were divided after the time of Solomon's reign. Remember, the southern kingdom was comprised of Judah, which also included Benjamin. A little bit of history. Hosea prophesied in the 8th century B.C., approximately 720 years before um, Christ. Uh, That era, that time, was for the northern kingdom a time of great prosperity. It was also a time when Israel had turned to worshiping idols. There was great wickedness in the land. The theme of the book of Hosea, as is true in other uh, prophets in the Old Testament, is of sin is of punishment and restoration for Israel. But in this one, we also see an extended metaphor where the prophet Hosea is told, is commanded by God to marry a prostitute woman whose name is Gomer. Her name means corruption. And she gives birth to three children. At least one of them was his, and the other two likely were not his children. The names of these children, Jezreel, uh, the Lord sows, he soweth, Lo-Ru-Homa, and Lo-Ami, 
are all given so that God might demonstrate through this picture of Hosea, his wife, and their children, God's punishment, his punishment for the sins of the nation. Have you ever had a day that was you'd planned for and you were looking forward to something that was definitely going to happen and you had a sense of great anticipation for that day? If I had to go back and look at a single day in my life that I waited for with great anticipation and a real longing, that day would certainly be my wedding day. When I was dating Carolyn over an extended period of time, I started looking forward to that day. Once I decided to propose to Carolyn, I was looking forward to asking her to marry me, trying to build up enough courage. And then I started looking, when I did it, wasn't so hard, but when I did it finally, I started looking forward to that day when we would actually be married. I can still remember what she looked like, me with a great sense of anticipation still, when she came down the aisle at church. I can remember the joyful, the bold, and the loud confidence with with which she recited her vows. It was in so many ways the greatest of days, and it went so well. It was worth anticipating and waiting for. Why am I talking about all this? Because what we have before us this morning, reading from God's Word, is a text of anticipation. Anticipation of a great wedding day. This is a wedding that seems impossible. There's far too much relational sin between Israel and God. Too much unfaithfulness on Israel's part. Too much brokenness from Israel. Too much sin against a holy God. This is a wedding where we could turn to one another and we could say, how can this be? When will this wedding ever come? Well, whose wedding are we talking about? If you're a believer this morning, we're talking about your wedding. We're talking about my wedding. We're talking about the marriage of the people of God to the Lord Jesus. He is the heavenly bridegroom. That's what's before us in Hosea chapter 2, but before we jump into the details of this great anticipated wedding day, we have to take a look back. We need a quick reminder of our relational dynamics that are in play here. This This look back is necessary because the first word in the text this morning is therefore. The therefore demands that we go back to see what took place before the text that is before us now. And what has taken place is that God has joined himself to Israel. He had chosen Israel as his very own, not because they were the greatest of the peoples or they were most obedient, no. On the contrary, we're told that in Joshua chapter 24, that Abraham was from a family of idolaters. And we're also told in Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 9 that Israel was stubborn and stiff-necked from the very beginning. But even so, God chose them. And he blessed them. He made them a great nation according to his promise. He redeemed them from bondage of slavery in Egypt. 
He gave them the gift of his word and of his holy presence. He gave them a good and pleasant land. God yoked himself to Israel in every conceivable way so that they would be his people and he in turn would be their God. Israel, however, turned from the Lord and turned to other gods, not just on one occasion, but over and over and over again. They took on worship of the gods of surrounding nations to their land. They disobeyed and utterly disregarded God's word and the commandments. And they did it all with arrogance. They persecuted the prophets that God would send to them in order to call them back to himself. And so now in Hosea, God is sending them another prophet. And Hosea is preaching to Israel, to the northern kingdom, in both word and in deed. How is he preaching in deed? According to God's commands, Hosea has taken the very broken and sinful Gomer as his wife. She's best described as a woman who was promiscuous and had extramarital relations. It's a living picture of God's relationship with a broken and a sinful and an unfaithful Israel. And Gomer, as we have seen, plays the literal prostitute, just as Israel has played the role of a spiritual prostitute. Gomer has gone after other lovers. She's born children to other men. And now out of the brokenness of his own personal life, Hosea must declare the word, God's word, to a nation that's being called back to himself. He has to declare this word to a very broken and sinful people, hopelessly, it seems, broken. He must declare that Israel is a spiritual prostitute and unto her God will no longer show mercy. There's judgment coming. He'll no longer consider Israel to be his people. In love, he has pleaded with her. In love, he has warned her. And now, Hosea declares that out of God's jealous love, God will punish and discipline Israel, his chosen people, to her very breaking point. He'll destroy the nation of Israel as a kingdom before him. As we look back to verse 6, there's a great therefore. And then there are subsequent words of judgment and discipline. There's another therefore in verse 9. We didn't read this this morning, but it prefaces today's scripture. In verse 9, there's... Uh, therefore, and then harsh words of judgment again. There's, this is really a rocky relationship in a betrothal. It would seem this is a bad, bad breakup, and there's no hope of reconciliation. That makes the therefore that we started with this morning in verse 14, and all the verses that flow from it, shocking to say the least. Because in verse 14, that therefore 
is followed by a series of verses that are all organized around a literary marker of that day. You see it in verse 16, in that day. And again in verse 18, on that day. And again in verse 21, and on that day. They're all referring these that days to one and the same day. It's the coming day when Israel and the Lord will be joined together in faithful and spiritual matrimony. But what we see is in each of those that day references, they all focus on or they all draw out different aspects of that day. Different aspects of this great spiritual wedding that will take place between God and his people. And so this morning I want each of us to consider these three that day clusters, all three of them. They're listed in the outline in your bulletin. First, let's look at the assured union of our glorious God in verses 14 to 17. God knows that Israel has forgotten him and deserted him. We see as much in verse 13, and yet out of the ashes of this relational devastation, God says, therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her, and I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, the valley of Achor is a place back in Joshua chapter 7 where Israel committed great sin and rebellion, and God enacted a great judgment. What God is saying here is, I'm going right to the place, right to that place where your sin, your rebellion, and your judgment are. And there, I will usher you into hope and joy forever. And he goes on, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time she came out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. What a projection. What a promise. No longer will you call me my Baal. I'll remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered no more. The first thing we need to see here is that all the initiative behind that day is with the Lord himself. He has pleaded to Israel through their brothers and sisters. He has warned Israel. He has punished Israel. And now he promises that the day, that day, is coming when he will allure Israel. And he will speak tenderly to her in the wasteland, in the wilderness. The wilderness, some of you know, through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, is a place of devastation for Israel and of judgment. Yet it's also the place where God meets his people in their devastation. In essence, you might say that this is God tenderly proposing marriage to Israel once again. He's alluring her. He's wooing her. He's gently calling her to return to him. Let's look at point number two, God's assured union. This is a union that is promised and it is assured. It's an effectual proposal. What's that mean? It 
it, this proposal, produces the very response that it calls for. From a theological perspective, we call this effectual calling. (coughs) And what God is doing here, he's calling his people to himself in such a way that he produces the response that he desires. God allures. He speaks tenderly. God gives blessings and Israel answers. It's a necessary prophetic message. God will call out in great tenderness. He will call out with effectual power. And Israel will respond with the language of affection and faithfulness. Can you see that God is initiating this all? God declares that Israel will purge the language of the Baals from her lips. The idols of the land will be remembered no more. And in their place, they will call the Lord, my husband. They'll declare, I've been nothing but unfaithful to you. I deserve nothing but your wrath, your judgment, and condemnation. Yet you speak to me with words of grace, with words of forgiveness. And you propose to me with anew with words of tenderness a tender calling back, and in your sovereign grace you melt my heart. And you compel me to say, I do, I will, I will return to you. We will be your people and you will be our God. In great contrast to what we heard just a few minutes ago. That'll be a great day, that day. And when this day comes, it will not merely be a case of God Proposing in marriage a proposal that's graciously accepted, but the gracious God who speaks tenderly to Israel and induces her to cry out, My husband, then promises that he will enter into a formal covenant with Israel. Essentially, he's declaring a renewed covenant of marriage with his people. We pick this up in verse 18 For I will make for them a covenant. On that day. And as we see in verses 18 to 21, there's three aspects of God's promise. It's a covenant on one hand of the beast and the birds and the creeping things. Second, it's a promise to take away from the land completely war, completely abolished. And finally, it involves a marital betrothal between the Lord and and Israel, a wedding feast of the Lamb will be enjoyed. Now all these three aspects are connected. They're not only connected in this passage, but according to Scripture, we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that God created humanity and he blessed them in every aspect of their life. They had right relationship with God, Adam and Eve, All creatures, great and small, and even the ground on which they walked, all of this rightness was conditioned on walking with the Lord in perfect obedience. We see in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, every part of these blessings was cursed. Humanity's relationship with God was cursed and it was broken. Humanity's relationship with one another, us to each other, 
was cursed and broken. And humanity's relationship with creation was cursed and broken. Sin and death, which were not to be, came to be and reigned and ruled throughout the created order. God's plan has always been to redeem his people. He wanted them, he wants us to experience the newness, the fullness of his blessing. So that when God chooses and blesses Israel, when he brings them out of Egypt and into the promised land, he promises that if they will hold fast to his word, he will bless them in rich and complete ways. Ways that echo the blessings of the Garden of Eden. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 to 12, for instance, God promises Israel that if they will walk in the Lord's statutes and observe his commandments, he will give them grain and wine and oil in the promised land. They will dwell securely, it says, free from the sword, from war, and the attacks of their enemies. They will dwell securely when he removes harmful beasts from the land, and they will revere and worship the Lord. That's indeed like a picture of Eden restored. However, just as we've seen Adam and Eve sin, disobey, and Israel too, because of their disobedience, all the potential blessings of Leviticus 26 have been taken away from Israel. But what we see is even in the midst of that judgment, and in many other places in the Old Testament, God's promising that in spite of all of their sin, he's promising to make a new covenant with his people. A covenant in which he not only promises them blessings for obedience, which he's already done before, what they have broken. And now in a new way, he's promising to effectually, effectually produce the faith and the obedience that he's calling for. And he is promising to betroth Israel to himself forever. It's a betrothal, as we see from God's word, in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. And the Lord says, I will betroth to you, you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And you see here in this spiritual marriage to the Lord, this new covenant, it not only brings about right relationship between us and God, but it also brings a holistic relationship that is made new within the creation and with each other. That's why this covenant is not just made with Israel, but also with the beasts of the land. And there's a promise of peace. Violence will be purged from the land. It's a message we see over and over again in the prophets. We see the recurring themes coming together of the covenant bond of marriage with God in which that what is produced is peace between men and women in harmony with the creation. One way of saying this is this is the kingdom of the Lord. If we consider in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, starting with verse 11, the Lord promises to seek out the lost sheep of Israel. 
He's going to shepherd them himself and enter into a covenant of peace in which he banishes wild beasts from the land, drives out their enemies, makes them dwell secure, and enables all of God's people to know, I am the Lord, their God, and they, the house of Israel, are my people. They are the sheep of my pasture, and I am their God. Let's look at the third point. It's God's renewed covenant with his people. The Lord's not just promising to propose to his people in marriage with tender allurement in the wilderness. He's not just promising to produce Israel's acceptance of that proposal so they'll declare him my husband. But he's promising to enter into a formal, renewed covenant with them in which he leads Israel into marriage with himself. And now in which both parties come together in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, in faithfulness, and complete knowledge. And then through that, they'll experience peace with one another and peace with the creation. It's unthinkable. Why does he do this? Why, in spite of all of Israel's sin and spiritual promiscuity, would God do this? Because his grace is truly amazing. His grace is greater than all of our sins. The love of God is indeed strong and true. It's eternal, and yet it is every, ever new every morning. And so we have to say to one another, oh, what a day that's going to be. That day. But there's still more. For even on that day, we see that it's not just a proposal and an acceptance. It's not just a day of covenant union. It's a day of pronouncement and celebration in a way that goes beyond our wildest imagination. You see in the final three verses of this passage, in that day, in that day, the Lord says, I will answer. Can you see God doing, taking all of the initiative here? I will answer. And that divine answer, see, you see, triggers a whole lot of other answering it says, the Lord will answer the heavens. The heavens will answer the earth. The earth will answer the grain and the wine and the oil. And they shall all answer Jezreel. It is the Lord who sows. The Lord sows Israel for himself in the land. And he says, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And God's chosen shall say, you are my father. What's going on here with all that answering and all that saying back and forth? I think it's like a marriage ceremony. You've been to weddings before. When the pastor says, you may kiss the bride, everyone just starts clapping and cheering. It's a great pronouncement, and it compels all the witnesses to answer with rejoicing. And here it seems in our text that the Lord is proposing to Israel, and she is accepting. The Lord is joining himself to Israel in the covenant of marriage, and he is now pronouncing this betrothal to be official and forever. 
and all of creation responds with rejoicing and praising God. The chorus of creation bears joyful and abundant witness to the faithful, to the righteous, the just, the loving, merciful, betrothal of God to his people, and all is made right. God saying to sinful Israel, and he says to us this morning, you turned on me, you forgot me, you forsook me, you were unfaithful to me in every conceivable way, so much so that I had to rename you. Loru Hama, which is no mercy. Lo Ami, which is not my people. It doesn't get any worse than that, that God would pronounce that on Israel or for us. But now God is saying to Israel, not because of anything you have done or because you've been obedient, I will say to not my people that you are my people. I will declare mercy to you who I have called no mercy. I'll allure you. I will speak tenderly to you in the wilderness and I will produce a faithful response in you. I will make a spiritual covenant of marriage with you and you will in fact know me. You will be mine and I will be yours. You will be right with me. You will be right with one another. You will be right with creation, and all of creation will rejoice and sing over the marvelous saving work that the Lord has done among his people. In summary, this is the impossible marriage coming to be, that which was hopelessly broken beyond all repair being restored. It's a picture of joy unspeakable, more unquenchable, but of course, that raises one last set of questions, right? How? When? When will this take place, this day? How is it going to come about? It's a question that plagued the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We see glimpses of this restoration in the return from exile in Babylon but it's not as complete and satisfying like this passage testifies to us this morning. So we can ask, when is this great proposal coming? This covenant marriage renewal, this cosmic celebration, when's it going to happen? The Old Testament draws to a close and it has not come. We, along with the nation of Israel, enter into a period of waiting, of longing, of great anticipation, waiting for that day, centuries upon centuries. And then along comes our carpenter from Nazareth. He gives himself various titles. Son of man, I am, life, gate, good shepherd, light of the world, vine, all of these from God's word that Jesus calls himself. His name is Jesus Christ. One of the titles that he refers to himself also is the title of bridegroom. He says, 
I am the bridegroom myself. The bridegroom of who? It's no particular woman. It's the nation of Israel and God's chosen people, the elect of God. And we see in the life of Jesus as a bridegroom, he speaks with tenderness to lost sinners, like we've not seen before in Scripture. And this tender bridegroom who speaks tenderly to Israel and woos them to himself, he then sits down with his disciples and offers a new covenant in his blood. Connections start coming together. And this Jesus, he dies on the cross for the sins of his people, the sins of Israel. And even in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verse 2, he dies for the whole world. And he is raised from the dead. He is triumphant over sin and death. And Jesus now stands and offers himself as king, yes. As priest, yes. As lamb of God, yes. But also as a heavenly bridegroom for the people of God. With the invitation that for all who will repent and believe in him and follow him in faith, he will receive them as the very bride of Christ, his church. It's not just an invitation for the ethnic people of Israel. It's actually an invitation for the whole world. For all of those who are not God's people, he'll call them my people. He woos them. He speaks tenderly, and in his grace, he now produces, as he's producing throughout the nations, including the United States of America, an effectual response of faith and obedience. He's gathering people to himself from all the nations. The bridegroom has come. The joining is taking place, brothers and sisters. say to yourself, hey, that's really good, but where's this uh, kind of cosmic celebration? All things made new? That's really good, but where is this cosmic celebration? Well, for that, we have to go to the very end of the Bible. In, in the book of Revelation, Scripture says that this Jesus who came, who died, who rose, who ascended into heaven is coming again. And when he comes again, he'll consummate this marriage in all fullness and all beauty. The scripture says he will make all things new and he will establish his table, which will be a gathering place of the nations to take part in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Beloved, uh, I want to say to you that if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are missing out on the greatest love ever known to mankind. The greatest grace, the greatest tenderness, a love that is beautiful and whole now, but it will be consummated in all of eternity with cosmic celebration forever. If you're not a believer, in the Lord Jesus Christ, I implore you to listen to his tender calling. To his request, his invitation to the great marriage of God and his people. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then 
we need to live this day with the knowledge that the bridegroom has come and the bridegroom is going to come again so that we look forward eagerly with great anticipation. We live our lives today in hope and anticipation of something that's definitely going to happen, the consummation of all things, all things made new, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we live as a people that have a hope in spite of sickness and in death. And a people who have love and grace to extend to all the world, even our next door neighbors. We're a people who can endure under trial and affliction and loss. Because we are beloved and we are treasured by the heavenly bridegroom. And we will be safe and security in his loving arms forever. Martin Luther said there were only two days on the Christian calendar. There's today and there is that day. And I pray that God will allow us, enable us to treasure this hopeful promise of his word for that day. That we will hold fast to Jesus in faith and we'll live our whole lives this day with a firm grasp and expectation and anticipation of that day. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ has given himself for you and he calls us eagerly to the marriage feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're faithful when we are not. We do pray. We pray that you would woo us unto yourself. Bring prodigals and stray, unfaithful people such as us. Bring us home. Gather all the nations and that we may celebrate and rest in your grace and eagerly look forward to the consummation of all things, all things being made new, and the glorious celebration of celebrations, the wedding feast of the Lamb. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.